We are sitting actually in the offices of CIPRI, where we both are attached as fellows, Michael and me, to, to the European program directed by Ian Anthony here. And um, uh, maybe you want to present yourself, Ian. I'm a program director for European security here at, at CIPRI. It's on a full spectrum of issues, really, from military research and development, arms trade, arms industry, to nuclear arms control, um, arms control across the spectrum of weapons of mass destruction, conventional arms control, um, broad spectrum of topics. Yeah, and uh, don't forget that you also were acting director of this institute for a while uh, uh, during a rather crucial time. Anyway, so with your help, we had a seminar here at CIPRI in December on Syria and issues around Syria, uh, which, uh, where you brought in quite a number of people. You didn't share it yourself, but you introduced the topic. Maybe you want to just recap what you got out of that seminar very briefly. Yes, I wanted to really try and use the discussion of Syria to illustrate some broader tendencies uh, which apply not only in that country um, but elsewhere. Uh, the changing nature of conflict, um, conflict of very long duration, enormously complex with a mix of state and non-state actors, so fully internationalized, um, a mix of different techniques being used in the conflict, interesting from this perspective. Um, a conflict which is also illustrating some of the tendencies in multilateral uh, diplomacy and uh, multilateral arms control. Um, a huge challenge trying to organize an effective peace process uh, with multiple actors working in different frameworks. Um, a very serious challenge to the most successful global disarmament treaty, the Chemical Weapons Convention with the confirmed use of chemical weapons. So a whole series of things happening in Syria, which of course are enormously important by themselves, but which are also illustrative of some more general uh, tendencies uh, that we need to be thinking about. Yeah, and you use the term uncharted territory. I listened to what you said during the introduction in, in December. You mentioned uncharted territory. Uh, which obviously is true, that we don't know where things are going. But unfortunately, Mikael, what we said in what you said, mainly you, with your background as ambassador to Turkey and, and following this uh, region for a long time, what you said in a report about a year ago, our first report from the project on, uh, on European security and Swedish uh, perspectives mm. about the region and where we are going, Unfortunately, it's coming true. So, I mean, some things obviously are happening uh, very much to our regret. Uh, maybe you would like to recap that one as well, very mm -hmm. quickly. Very quickly, um, yeah, I pointed out and we pointed out in our report that the Syria crisis has somehow uh, fallen into uh, three main sub-conflicts that coexist and overlap and the three Syrian crises overlapping with, with each other also overlap with the larger uh, regional dimensions. I'm thinking especially about Israel-Palestine and about the crisis inside Iraq. 
But the three I mentioned in, in Syria itself was uh, obviously uh, the northeastern situation, which has become uh, maybe less dramatic in recent times, but uh, enormously much more complicated after the Turkish incursion that occurred in, uh, in October last fall. And then you have a situation there where uh, there is a sort of a, a strange coexistence now between remaining IS, ISIS forces that still need to be taken out, uh, Syrian forces that have been uh, let back into this area as a result of Russian presence, which in turn uh, was enhanced by the Turkish incursion. And then, of course, uh, Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from Syria altogether in the end didn't come true. Uh, there is still some 700 US troops in that northeastern area. And they are patrolling daily and having say, little incidents daily with Russian counterparts uh, as they are all patrolling in this chaotic part uh, of Syria. And then you have Idlib, of course, the remaining still rebel hobbit constantly shrinking. Uh, remaining uh, rebel province uh, where there are three million or so civilians in into which some 10 or 20 or so thousand uh, armed jihadists or more or less jihadist uh, uh, rebels are embedded making creating uh, as a final phase of the original civil war in in syria an enormously uh, complicated thing to sort out militarily and diplomatically uh, if and possible that's where you made your most fateful prediction isn't yes it? yes because somehow i saw then and uh, we can see even more clearly now that this is uh, a difficult question of uh, a bang or a whimper and uh, most signs uh, point to bang in this uh, spectrum of possibilities because there are uh, things in motion now which seem unstoppable and only uh, a couple of days ago there were direct clashes between the regular Turkish army that has been reinforced into the area. So Turkey is not only working through proxies now yeah. but having reinforced its regular army clashing directly with Syrian army which in, in turn is uh, Russia and Iran supported. And of course on the humanitarian side uh, uh, people have fled in there hundreds of thousands and now there are some million people flocking at the Turkish border because the unique case of Idlib is that this is an enclosed area. Uh, there is no one, uh, nowhere to go from all those people, whether they be ordinary civilians or rebels, by the way, because Turkey has built a wall. Yeah. And Turkey has announced that uh, we cannot even cope any longer with the three point, three point million uh, Syrian refugees that we have received. Yeah. And even less, of course, uh, have receiving an another wave. Yeah. So you have a humanitarian crisis, which is untenable, and you have a uh, migration-related crisis. Uh, so, so, I mean, here is the big difference with Yemen, I suppose, that, yeah. uh, that yeah. we have, we have a, a, a fantastically important, uh, very contested agreement with Turkey. Mm. From 2016, on the EU side, which and you can sit and of course lament the humanitarian situation at a distance, but mm. this might not be at a distance mm. for us. Yeah. This might actually come back and and hunt us. us. And, yeah, uh, and, absolutely. and this is what we talked about already a year ago. Absolutely, uh, and then uh, the, you can you, one can say because of the low level US presence. 
uh, which uh, is uh, another interesting case. And if there were to be, in spite of uh, Russian diplomacy, a direct open war between Turkey, regular army, and Syria, that of course raises also interesting questions. Of it. So what about NATO? Hmm. Uh, should NATO now be called upon? Uh, there have been sever several such instances in the past, but now it's for real to uh, enter into support of the NATO ally uh, in view of all the other problems between Turkey and the US uh, that uh, coexist. So it's a very messy combination of various dimensions of the conflict. Yeah. And then finally, you still have the Israeli-Iranian yeah. interaction on Syrian soil uh, involving also Lebanon because of Hezbollah. Yeah. And there is a low, uh, daily incidence of, uh, of warfare, but kept on a low level in order to mm. maintain the freedom of action for the parties. And this, linked to the US-Iran problem, yeah. of course. So on this, uh, at this point, it might be useful to say as a pre-announcement that we are uh, one week from now, we'll have a seminar, a symposium mm. at the Swedish Academy, Royal Academy of War Sciences yeah. in Stockholm, where we'll uh, briefly present and discuss uh, a more extensive report that we, mm. have, uh, we have produced, which is not yet finalized because we are waiting for comments from our colleagues in inside and outside the academy but which which will be introduced there uh, by us uh, and uh, which is um, referring and broadening the the problems that you just mentioned we're talking about the the, the challenges and threats uh, to europe mm. uh, focusing both on war spilling over possible to europe uh, and now broadening the the attention to four different areas. Yes. I mean, th those are the uh, what you mentioned just uh, around Syria, uh, and then Iran, Iran, Iraq, and then you mentioned Libya now also, mm. and we we also go into the Eastern Mediterranean. I'll mm. come back to you, Ian, in a while because uh, you already a year ago, I think, said at a seminar on the Western Balkans we had at the RBF in in Stockholm that there are strategic uh, changes going on also naval on the naval front so to say in the in the mediterranean that you need to take into account when you look at these mm. situations mm. so there you had one sort of dimension of risks and challenges that we are dealing with in the report rather extensively mm. although by no means uh, exhaustively obviously this mm. is a huge topic but our uh, at, at, our intention is to try to give people a chance to get an overview, basically, mm. and to continue to be in more interested in the South than they possibly have mm. been before. And the other dimension is the, the one, uh, and we're using the concept of flow security there, and how do we protect the essential things that we need to see coming in, our, in and out of Europe, mm. both um, human movements, uh, including trade and, and tourism and what have you, uh, migra legal migration, <clears throat> and then uh, obviously also material, trade, assistance, and then virtual uh, cyber and information and, and financial flows and all that. And uh, we're talking about flows that can be uh, and need to be protected. We're talking about flows that need to be interdicted. And on the other side, then we're looking, uh, you know, of course, the very close interlinked nexus of terrorism and organized crime. All that against the backdrop of a megatrends that we see now worsening and being discussed uh, you know mm. with increasing desperation actually when you talk about climate change we're talking about um, migration uh, inside africa 
inside the Middle East from the countryside to the mega cities which are growing incessantly in, the, in these regions and uh, a general population uh, explosion uh, despite whatever one may say about how it, it would be possible to contain this through more education and health. The other, uh, it doesn't seem that migration research uh, gives us, uh, makes the same conclusions about what will happen as mm. they did for Asia. Mm. Uh, Asia has quite a different link to technology and so on. Mm. Uh, Can I just add uh, on this, because uh, in that report uh, we are linking the challenges as we see them uh, of these various kinds of with the responses yeah. of Europe. Uh, Europe uh, with the rope in the parenthesis to mark that one question is Europe as a whole and one the other thing is what about the EU inside that larger unit to to point to uh, to uh, tensions there. And uh, uh, my general sense, if I may say so, in your presence, Ian, is that there is a tendency for the international system generally to be out of touch with the emergence of, of conflict structures right now, making the question of so what can, what can the EU and Europe do about all these things because we cannot uh, contain those things any longer because of the various factors of, from globalization to elsewhere. And I, as I mentioned to you, uh, I think that the, the case of uh, Libya is particularly mm. interesting in this case uh, because uh, there you have, and I showed you an article by someone who uh, pointed out the contradiction between the efforts by individual e uh, European countries and the EU as a whole to make deals with governments mm. south of the border, south of the Mediterranean, whether those countries themselves or beyond in order to, st to stem the flow of mi migrants uh, that are uh, illegal and unwanted and the, of course the co commerce being connected to it. That tends to militate against what else is done in order to promote peace in that same area. Mm -hmm. so, so there is an interesting and a huge uh, dilemma involved in this. I mean a great uh, emphasis in the report is made on the risk of counterproductive effects. Bad, bad. Uh, sometimes yeah. it's better probably not to do anything. Sometimes some things that have been done in the past, we now have, know, have, we now know, have not led to neither sustainable development nor sustainable peace. Uh, so one has to be very, very, uh, very, very extensive in one advance analysis. Mm. At the same time, to know the details, mm. so you need to zoom in and zoom out in a way that. And this has to do not only about uh, with uh, terrorism or radicalization. It also has to do with general frustration among often young educated elites in these new mega cities who might uh, might need to find new ways to 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 find a life if not in europe then uh, maybe in these mega cities uh, being a part of a, an ever more sophisticated organized crime and which brings back to some of the work that you have done ian on uh, on for instance uh, the way of cities how cities relate to mm. We are giving an overview, but mm. uh, uh, of the of the in the the picture, so to say, the combination of challenges, uh, unfortunate events in the recent years, uh, Trump, Brexit, and so on, uh, the mega trends that we are referring to, mm. 
and the responses and uh, and the fact that uh, just to finish off on the structure of the report we're talking about the new geopolitical approach of the of the mm. eu mm. which is seems to be rather widely supported i mean i, I detect around two-thirds of the european parliament being in support of this approach mm. uh, most of the member states of the european union also are uh, in coming out in support of Ursula von der Leyen's and, yeah. uh, and Joseph Borrell's uh, and we heard geopolitical Swedish, approach. We heard the Swedish foreign minister yesterday yes, yes. Uh, along the same similar so, lines. So, so coming back to, to Ian, uh, now you, you hear here this, uh, this sort of devastating picture, which is in a sense a devastating, it's not a very hopeful picture. Uh, what would you take out of all this as particularly uh, important to look into further? Um, well, of course, everything that you put on the table was um, important. Um, I would just reflect on a couple of the things that you mentioned. Um, you mentioned the discussion we had earlier last year at um, RBF Husset about Southeastern Europe and the Western Balkans. The point I was trying to make there was that um, what we've seen emerging is essentially a continuous strategic space from the Black Sea to the Eastern Mediterranean, and now, after we had that meeting, I would say also to the southern part of the Mediterranean, um, as a consequence of Russia's engagement in Syria, to a certain extent. Um, so this is a factor which is now being put in the context that you were mentioning of these broader geopolitical um, transformations, uh, which could lead to additional confrontations even uh, between different groups. So the emergence of this single strategic space is one thing which I think is a new development that we don't fully understand and that requires some further uh, analysis and investigation. Um, that's overlaid with some of the uh, points that Miko was making which complicate the picture even further because what were traditionally thought of as rather coherent and integrated response mechanisms such as NATO now increasingly have their own internal fractures, mm. uh, which are a consequence of some of the developments you described. Um, so I think this is one area uh, where we need to do a lot more thinking about what are the implications of the creation of this integrated strategic space, Black Sea, Eastern Mediterranean, um, Southern Mediterranean. Mm. Uh, in terms of what you were mentioning related to the so-called geopolitical Europe, um, I think if you take a step back, what we've seen over the last few years is a shift in the thinking about how the European Union should behave in its immediate neighbourhood. Um, for a long time, I think the essential paradigm was that through continuous engagement and interaction, the European Union could have a transformative effect on its neighbourhood. And I think that paradigm has now changed. And as you were describing some of the instruments, you see that now Europe is essentially concerned with protection. So it's how to insulate against the negative developments that are occurring around um, the European Union, rather than thinking about how to transform the neighborhood. And a lot of the um, specific actions, even if they're outside the EU, point in that direction. Uh, the creation of uh, EU-sponsored holding camps um, as a barrier operation. 
the transformation of CSDP operations um, from humanitarian assistance to uh, creating another barrier against the movement of uh, illicit or illegal um, migrant flows. Um, the commitments to Turkey to support with increased air and missile defense systems, another barrier against a negative development in the neighborhood. So step by step, we see the change from a Europe of transformation to a Europe of protection. Um, a fortress I, Europe or what? You can mm -hmm. try and use this uh, formulation, but mm. all of that's taking place against the backdrop of three decades of internationalization, urbanization, digitalization, which are pushing in the opposite direction. So I think the fortress is, it's not a realistic um, construct. But, yeah. but certainly a series of layered barriers to try and create some insulation. Um, that seems to me the broad general tendency of thinking. So even interventions like um, uh, military training ex uh, efforts are essentially to create a framework for withdrawal, not to create a framework for continued engagement. Yeah, that's very important. So I, I mean, just to, to, to uh, refer to this protective or defensive uh, posture, uh, to mention that we, we talk in the report about uh, basically four instruments, uh, types of instruments that would be used to, to create more leverage in this, in this sense. Uh, one could use, actually talk about five. Uh, first, of course, is trade itself, uh, using trade deals uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as Trump does, uh, as a transactional uh, uh, way to, to uh, gain influence and uh, put pressure on countries to adopt legislation, which is uh, like has been done in Niger now, to get them to criminalize uh, migration and accept detention camps. Uh, the second is, uh, is development assistance itself, where there is much less talk about OSCE guidelines and, and DAC guidelines for assistance, and much more talk about uh, doing budgetary uh, assistance, where you simply give the money under a strict conditionality, and you negotiate what, what, the, what the aid should be used for, not having to be present on the ground. The third instrument is, uh, is the... Uh, uh, of course, the trust funds uh, that you uh, we mentioned the Turkey, but you can mention uh, the Khartoum process, uh, whether you're cooperating on the on the eastern side of Africa, you have the Rabat process on the western side of Africa, where there is a, a lot of cooperation going on in order to use the money that uh, basically is devoted uh, as an outflow of the internal security strategy of the EU uh, to to uh, to basically uh, protect. Europe. And then uh, uh, the fourth one, uh, interesting, is uh, European Peace Facility, which is an outflow of the African Peace Facility, but now moving into the possibility of giving actual weapons, uh, actual military assistance to recipient countries uh, who would do the work that we then would not like to do on the ground as, as Europeans. Mm. So, so it's a... Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, we will see what the finance ministers in the end will approve. I mean, they, this will cost a lot of money, some of these things, and it's not yet through all the budgetary uh, authorities, but certainly it's a, it's a new, new wind blowing. There are campaigns going on on the, the part of civil society against the, the post, post potential counterproductive effects of some of these postures. Uh, so we'll have a, 
an interesting debate and also an interesting subject of research for the coming years. Can I say, um, that may well be the way things develop, but I hope they develop in a different direction. Mm. When people are talking about geopolitical Europe, um, I think if you look at the priorities for the new commission, you have a series of issues there which could be the basis for an effective EU so-called geopolitical approach if they're used in the right way. And you mentioned that in our serious um, seminar already. Yeah, I think if you look at the um, topics which are high on the agenda, you have the promotion of so-called <laughs> green economy. Yeah. You have the creation of so-called digital exactly. single market. Um, these are things which are extremely important for Europe itself, but we need to avoid the risk that they're seen as things done by Europe for Europe to the exclusion of others. Mm. Um, opening partnerships where we can work together on the green economy, where we can work together on the digital economy, would be the EU using its most powerful instruments in a geopolitical way. The idea that the EU can act as a more traditional type of great power, mm. I think, is still extremely controversial. Yeah. Whether it's feasible, whether it's even desirable, is very much contested. Yeah. So using the existing instruments, which are very powerful in a sophisticated way, is, I hope, going to be what we see um, as the development pathway in the next few years. And thematically. But I want to do a link to what you have said, both of you, uh, I see a grave risk agreeing with what you said about this trend towards, we sometimes call it securitization, uh, meaning that uh, things that we used to uh, justify in terms of uh, more altruistic mm. motives uh, are now somehow seemingly recognized as uh, self-interest related in, in a much clearer way. But the problem that I see is that the issues of the South, as we call it, from uh, from Libya to uh, to Turkey, let's say, and Turkey, by the way, is now planning to build a new canal, which will uh, link even further the Black Sea dimensions to the Eastern Mediterranean. But I see the EU on the one hand feeling that, oops, we have to do more geopolitically. We have been uh, accepting too too long to be the re on the receiving end of problems uh, mm. rather than proactively. And, and geopolitically acting on things that the consequences of which will affect us. So that's fine and I, understandable in a way. And then one tends to forget mistakes in the past where similar trends have uh, crashed into a wall and uh, forcing changes. So uh, the problem with having to deal proactively perhaps and geopolitically with all those issues pertaining to the south of Europe tend to be the same issues that divide uh, EU member countries because there are so many national interests linked. Libya is a key example, uh, Italy, French, Italian, French contradictions there, for example, but so much more in the Eastern Mediterranean, the, the gas exploration processes, the difficulties uh, of uh, even enhanced of, of dealing with the Cyprus issue, for example. So I see uh, a necessity to do things, to step forward, but uh, crashing with realization that th this same thing tends to divide uh, or enhance national interest between. So it will be unified action by the, uh, by the EU uh, rendered more difficult. Yeah. And the same applies then to transatlantic relations because 
if the EU as EU or uh, main uh, actors within the EU, like French, uh, the French or the Germans, have to uh, try to pursue their policies in a Palestine issue, for example, or the Iran nuclear deal, finding then uh, increasing difficulties of agreeing with the US, then that uh, puts strains on the foreign policy coherence, which will have security implications, at least potentially. I think you see that reflected in some of the recent decisions, um, but you also see in some of the recent decisions countries searching for a pathway out of that yeah. dilemma. Um, I mean, one of the most interesting developments of the last few years has been the way in which the European Union and NATO have increased their collaboration mm. to the point where you can, in a way, almost talk about them as a single community of states. But a topic like the one you've introduced of the um, resource extraction in the Mediterranean pushes in a different direction. Mm. You could see how the European Union's solidarity behind Greece and Cyprus um, could further complicate reaching any sort of accommodation with Turkey. Yes. And that puts at peril this very progressive development of EU-NATO cooperation. But on the other hand, you have within NATO the decision now to have a forward reflection on the political dimension of the alliance. Um, you have the promise in um, the European Union of a new conversation about the future of, of Europe. Um, so you can see people trying to construct processes which will help to manage, if not resolve, some mm. of these difficulties. Absolutely. That's why uh, these issues are so exciting now for us yes. uh, doing the analysis uh, <laughs> part of the... That's absolutely true. If you're an outside observer, an academic, it's mm. a fascinating laboratory. Yeah. If you have to actually solve the problems, yeah. I understand it's more difficult. Can I just come back uh, briefly to the positive agenda that you, you mentioned uh, already in, at our Cipri, uh, Syria seminar in, in December, and we also mentioned it in the report, namely the issue of the Green Deal and, and the, the digitalization agenda. I looked into the, uh, the, uh, the digital issue a little bit, and I found out, uh, obviously we have, uh, already since some time back, uh, a, a development aid policy from the EU which builds on the notion of trade capacity building in the South, that you want to give, uh, sort of in, in some way, try to change the division of labor between the North and the South towards more, more, uh, more uh, advanced production in, in the South and help countries in the South to be able to export to Europe, etc. We also see that uh, uh, Microsoft, I saw a list of Microsoft uh, exporting uh, some, there were hundreds, I think 100 companies or so on, that are now uh, trying to export technology to Africa. So it's clearly there is a, and we have seen technology uh, development, of course, it's a very important part of the development of Asia. That's how Asia was able to, 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 to beat the projections of Gunnar Midal in his Asian drama uh, uh, books. Um, uh, the, pro the problem is, however, how we can get enough process in this. Uh, and uh, and uh, that's where much more resource has, uh, research has to be done. I mean, how one can get traction, how one can get sort of mm. momentum in this, in this development of... Uh, and, and, and this um, means, unfortunately, and that's one of the main conclusions we have in the report, that we are not likely to be able to, 
just do uh, development policies, humanitarian policy. We need to complement them with other policies as well. But obviously we need to do it in a way which moves towards as much positive uh, agenda as possible, not just uh, as much cooperation uh, rather than protection and, and so forth. Whatever we do before we move into Turkey, which mm. I think we should finish with Turkey, because that's the critical link to Europe in, in a sense, mm. uh, is that in our report we are, we are, we are questioning very strongly the, some of the assumptions made that uh, you know, the big powers, in particular the United States, will contain the problem for us. We don't need to engage directly, take the lead in any way. Uh, we are questioning that, uh, particularly during Trump, may maybe also for the future. We are also questioning uh, some of the judgments made in the Swedish debate, including in our defense review. Uh, we are worried that uh, some of the conclusions of that review are too optimistic, namely that we should not focus too much on this uh, region. Uh, it, it has ultimately importance for European security and for Swedish security, but they say, the, they say that's the main uh, uh, conclusion that we need to focus on the east-west dimension. Worried about that. We also worried about uh, the uh, priority setting that is, is explicitly set out in the Defense Review report, namely that you probably should focus on generic uh, military capabilities uh, uh, for eventual possible deployment in the south on the Swedish side. There is an example of that right now, moving from an intelligence unit in, in, in MINUSMA in Mali towards uh, a, a normal rifle company, I think, uh, in, in Gao, in, in the eastern part of Mali. Uh, that is a kind of deployment that is proposed, that it would not be specialized capabilities. But the experience, in my view, from looking back at the Artemis operation, for instance, in 2003, that what the French were looking for was very sophisticated. You know, the Spitzen competences and the most advanced type of competences that Sweden could, could provide. Which other countries may not be able to provide. Able to provide. So also there we might be too optimistic. And we know that, you know, as soon as people ask us, do we want to participate do we need in Hormuz uh, around there? Or do we want to do something in this triangular border, uh, which Macron was speaking about uh, between uh, Burkina Faso, Niger and Mali? then uh, uh, very soon the process is there for, to discuss what Sweden and others can do. But Lars-Erik, I would like also to uh, uh, turn to Ian on, on one more dimension to this, which is that when we look at uh, events to the south now, south in a broad sense, of course, and, and deep sense, there is a lot of Russian pre presence now, mm. and Chinese. Uh, a trend uh, for uh, Putin's Russia uh, using diplomacy more skillfully and broadly, uh, let's say, uh, talking to everyone, uh, whether it be Assad or Netanyahu or uh, Rouhani or wh whoever, so that you see a trend uh, combined with uh, a trend to U.S. withdrawal of uh, Russian diplomatic and military uh, penetration. They are presence or present also in Libya now with uh, mercenaries from the Wagner Group. Uh, so you see that as a trend, uh, making a, or creating a sense of uh, uh, East-West relations to be implemented 
largely to, to that, those areas. And then behind this, you have also tend, a, a securitization trend arriving from the Chinese corner. So you have a sort of a globalization of the regional conflicts because they, there you have the areas of instability which somehow open up to, to uh, penetration for the willing and, uh, and Putin for one is, is very willing to do that. Now I think you're talking about the big game yeah. at the global level, yeah. which is also fascinating. Um, of which the EU aspires to be a part. Well, but what Lars-Erik was talking about earlier, about the um, uh, potential for engagement with Africa on the green economy, on the digital economy, uh, requires the incorporation of, of Asian countries that have powerful agency in relevant mm. technical areas. And China, obviously, is one of those, South Korea, Japan, or others. Um, and we don't have a clear picture of whether we are partners or competitors in these emerging um, economic areas in important uh, regions. Um, so this is one thing which is left unresolved. Uh, we also have, I think, um, a discussion which I don't fully understand yet, uh, coming from some of the French interventions in the European debate. Um, what President Macron has said about the need for some new framework of engagement with mm -hmm. Russia is um, not fully elaborated. Um, is this part of a broader <clears throat> attempt to separate somehow Russia from China in the sense that a consolidation of Russia and China would create a, a bigger problem at this big global game? Um, is that what's happening here? But again, we don't really have explanations from the French colleagues of exactly what they have on their mind when they introduce these ideas. Mm. But the ideas are being put on the table. Um, President Macron has repeatedly made reference to the need for Europe to move from an intervention um, initiative, which is based on voluntary contributions, to something more integrated at a European level. He repeatedly comes back to this. But he doesn't necessarily always put it in the context of the European Union. No, not because that. his discussion of the European Intervention Initiative seems to have been disappointing from his point of view when he tried to put this into the EU context. And you, you, so, and you see that reflected by the European Commission because in the mandate now given to Borrell and other commissioners, uh, Ursula von der Leyen stresses the need to get past the the obstacle of unanimity. So they are pushing hard to see ways to, to force actually individual member states to accept a more, uh, more integrated and, uh, and community-based uh, EU approach. And I think for the French and for the Germans to accept, to position their initiatives firmly in that context, in the EU context, that is a probably a necessary development. Yeah, you also see in the intergovernmental discussion of the next financial perspective, what a soft target the military cooperation is. Yeah. You see progressive, significant reductions in all of the Commission proposals mm. for more integrated approach to research and development, to defense industry, mm. um, to sponsoring military mobility projects. So the idea of the European Union as a significant military power is still very, very far away. Yeah, and, and you find also when you look at on the national level that the, the money uh, that is being asked for community money, for instance, on defense uh, mm. capability, 
billion. The, that's not small money in comparison to what we have on the national level. It's competing very in a very strong way with uh, with the priorities made in, the, in the, for instance, the Swedish defense mm. uh, review yeah. context. So you have a trend uh, to uh, for Mr. Macron, for example, to uh, want to broaden his initiative to encompassing the whole of Europe, but not necessarily EU framework. Because he, he didn't receive the answers he was hoping for, I suspect, yeah, in the yeah. internal discussion. You know, the paradox of this is that we closed down, in the name of efficiency, an organization, the Western European Union, which would actually be very convenient right now. Yeah. Um, it would be a way of bringing together European countries in the hard security field uh, with a very clear institutional connection to NATO. But then you would have a problem with Denmark. <laughs> but that's the type of institution which may need to be reinvented yeah, uh, yeah, post-Brexit. Yeah, yeah. um, ah, uh, we, we should mention that one of the previous directors here, Alison uh, Bayes, who was your, your close uh, co companion here for many years at CIPRI, actually was a political director of WEU and did sterling work in, the, in this country. Yeah, yeah. And, and repeatedly said, act in haste, repent at leisure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would ask uh, uh, Mikael, as the leader of this part of the SES project, to, to finish off this podcast with his reflections. The way Turkey, uh, under the present leadership, we are talking about, uh, about the controversial leaderships in many uh, countries, so we somehow have to, that applies to the US as well, uh, Trump administration and beyond. Similarly, in Turkey, you have the Erdogan administration and perhaps beyond. So, so there are many issues linked to, well, Israel, similarly, they have elections soon. So the question is about countries as an actor, depending on their current leader. Mm -hmm. In the case of uh, Turkey under the present leadership, uh, President Erdogan, Turkey has responded to all these developments that we have been talking to with a rather, uh, a rather aggressive foreign militarily militarized policy uh, uh, and I see this uh, from the point of view of Turkey as a domestically uh, related uh, trend uh, defending the regime uh, having economic problems etc but it means Jan, that Turkey is now um, rather active in uh, in the eastern Mediterranean it has launched policies there. They see it as a response, legitimate response to the actions of a grouping of other countries, obviously. The, the dynamic factor here being the discovery of, uh, of uh, hydrocarbon uh, um, facilities, uh, Israeli waters and, uh, and Cyprus waters, which raises the question of, so what are the... Uh, the uh, economic zone borders that are legitimate from the point of view of uh, Cyprus and that raises the question of what can be done uh, at all while the Cyprus issue remains unsolved. And now with these new developments uh, it has tended to uh, dramatize uh, relations, uh, both Turkey-Greek uh, relations but also Turkey-Israeli-Turkey, Turkey-Greece-Turkey-Cyprus uh, relations. And the EU, as you say, has tended to stand uh, uh, in support of their, of their own. Uh, in the case of Syria, uh, there you have uh, more split uh, perspectives, whether the uh, EU, uh, big question marks there, but also NATO, is in support of 
Turkey's uh, military actions there in the various areas where the Turkish army has in fact intervened. Now you have a dramatized situation now in Idlib, but overall, and then you have uh, the Turkish uh, step to uh, make an agreement with the GNA, Tripoli-based regime in, in Libya, uh, which is linked to another deal about uh, having military presence in support of that regime. And that, of course, is intended to block the trends to have cooperation, pipelines, etc., etc., among, as among the, these other countries. Meanwhile, you, you have a tendency of daily incursions, both uh, dogfighting between planes, but also uh, maritime incidents uh, over drillings and uh, Navy uh, escorts of drilling ships, etc., uh, so many interests are involved, but in the midst of this you have Turkey and uh, the current government is now planning to have a canal built, uh, which will be uh, 40 kilometers long and, and 400 meters wide, according to plans, cost enormously, be environmentally very controversial, and it will somehow raise to the for the issue of the Montreux de- Declaration of 36, and all the issues otherwise pertaining to the link between the Black Sea region and the Eastern Mediterranean. So many, many uh, sort of de- developments in that larger region has put the case of Turkey in even even more sort of controversial pictures. Yes. Yeah. And, so. and, and, and just to, to then finish off from my side by saying that this points then also to the Eastern dimension of our work. Mm, absolutely. Uh, we are worried, obviously, in the report that all the problems we have in the southern direction will make it more difficult for Europe to focus on its overall uh, coherence, of course, and, and integration, uh, but also its relationship with the East mm. and with the West. Yeah. It's, it's, it's becoming undermined by this, uh, not least in terms of domestic uh, political systems being undermined in their stability. Mm. And, uh, and you, 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 you are worried about uh, what's happening in the East, uh, challenges that we might face. I mean, in Belarus, for example. Belarus is a good example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I tried to argue the case recently that as we're at a reflection point in the um, European Union's Eastern Partnership, yeah. now would be a good time to consider adding uh, a more structural approach to the discussion of security problems as part of the Eastern Partnership. Um, which would be less to do with the management of uh, significant infrastructure projects or, yeah. or, or, or technical questions around project management and more to do with the political discussion with the partners about how they see the evolving environment in the eastern part of Europe and what they can do together with the European Union to mitigate risk. I, I think this um, would be very useful uh, yeah. as, a, as, a, as an additional uh, element of the Eastern Partnership. And it brings back so, uh, uh, my memories to, to, to the work that you pursued and I tried to help you about five years ago when we had the Ukraine crisis. We discussed, you know, in what f- context and in what framework are we actually debating the Ukraine crisis, uh, mm. where there was clearly a deficit in terms of comprehensiveness. We have this notion in our report about a comprehensive approach 2.0, which sounds realistic, uh, but also more comprehensive in, in that it takes in to the perspective those security are intimately related. Yeah. And in an unpredictable environment, I, I think it, it would be possible to explain to the Russian colleagues who might be suspicious about the addition of a security dimension to the Eastern Partnership, 
that what happens in that region very directly affects our interests yeah. and um, it's necessary for us to have those conversations. And that's probably a language that they very well understand. I would think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank mm-hmm. you very much. And uh, we'll finish with that and we'll be back uh, with uh, more on the Eastern Dimension shortly and also follow up to our Southern Dimension report, which will be published later this year. Thank you very much. <laughs>